Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This episode contains homophobic language and stories of hate crime and violence. This is a logbook entry from March the 17th, 1995. Combat 18 phoned again. I've made a report of this to the local police station, as this seems to be a direct threat to our building. This is a logbook entry from April the 30th, 1999, at 9.30pm. A bomb exploded in the Admiral Duncan pub in Old Compton Street three hours ago. So far, we don't really know exactly what has happened. We have heard worrying reports that two, three or seven people have been killed and about 40 injured. There were two people down on the rotor for this evening, but Kerry and Boo have been very quick to phone round and other volunteers have rallied around and we now have about eight people taking calls. I remember reading that logbook entry all these years later and still being so terrified about what was written there. You know, this bomb going off in Soho. It really is scary. It was the third of three bombs that April. And I remember the one that went off in Brixton because I remember on family holidays to London, we used to get the bus through Brixton and we used to go past the Iceland and that's where the bomb was. Mm, I remember the Brixton one and the Brick Lane too, but I don't remember at the time in 1999, I don't remember anything about a Soho bomb going off, attacking a gay club. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1992 and 2003. I'm Tash Walker. And I'm Adam Smith. Episode five, They Do Mean Us Harm. We're going to be talking about the nail bomb attack by David Copeland on the Admiral Duncan Gay Pub in Soho. One of three bombs he planted, the others being against the black community in Brixton and the Asian community in Brick Lane. We're going to be hearing from volunteers at Switchboard who were there at the time, who were part of that first response to the bombs, and memories of other people who remember where they were when this all happened. This is a logbook entry from 3.48am on the 6th of September, 1994. A guy just rang to say, we're going to do an attack on your people tonight at Horton Mansions. I rang the police, who said they'll deal with it, and phoned back. He was really threatening. I'm really glad about the lock on the door. But you walked into this space, we had like secure doors... They were like these metal doors. Uh, you know, you had, you felt secure, you felt safe to be in there. Hi, my name is Diana James and I am 62 years old. I was a volunteer at Switchboard from about 88 to 94. When you came into there late at night, or, you know, you're doing a light shift, or when you left in the morning, you felt safe, you felt secure. And that was really important after coming out of Houseman's where you didn't. You came out of there or you came in there late at night. You were always wondering whether, like, Combat 18 or another fascist group were waiting to kick your head in. This is logbook entry from the 22nd of July, 1994. Had a call at 2.30am from a man with a heavy Scottish accent. He said many varied things about fucking queers corrupting children and other such niceties. When he said the best place for gays was the gas ovens, I was ready to hang up. He then said what I was wearing, described me as I am now, and said I had just been downstairs, which I had. 
then went to say he was going to kill me and make the world safer from AIDS. He hung up. I took a deep breath and took another call. About two to three minutes later, the door buzzer went for about a minute. The person was not visible facially. Then this happened again, and I, well, I'm not that brave. I faxed GAY radio and got them to phone me. What exactly is the procedure for this? I'm honestly not happy that this has happened. I feel threatened and scared. Thinking about this, a lot of our mail deliveries, supplying companies, etc., know who and what we are, including thousands of post office workers. It's a horrible thought and I've got all sweaty. The fact that got me was he described my top, my glasses and my hair. Short. Sounds incredible. It does to me too, but it's happened and it's not nice. We are possibly being watched. Just after the door buzzer went off, after time number two, someone went on the staircase next door. My heart literally stopped. I'm babbling now. Totally ruined my shift. Every noise and I'm looking at the door. Uh, and switchboard is has always been a safe space, actually. It's odd. And um, we talk about communities, but where is the community? What, you know, what's tangible about it other than kind of the scene where you pay money, a lot of money for drinks or access or something? Where do we have that space and that switchboard? And I think it has been a hub for so many people in, in so many different different ways. I mean, at the time, in the 90s, you know, it was a very sensible decision not to have a sign on the door. Um, and there was something very anonymous about it. They always used to be talk that it was bomb-proof, but I was a bit thrown by the letterbox <laughs> in the front, that it had a bomb-proof front, but a letterbox, um, which always kind of spoiled that illusion for me. But but yes, it felt like a, a safe space. And maybe that was heightened by the fact that we were so aware that it was not safe. There were so many unsafe spaces outside there. And we, you know, we even had a letter from switchboard solicitors by the door that if ever we had a police raid, we would show this letter. So it was always this sense that there was a boundary there between safe and unsafe and how kind of, um, how grateful we were for that space and how quickly it could have been taken away. This is a logbook entry from March 20th, 1995, on Combat 18 threatening calls. Combat 18 are a deadly serious fascist terror group. They do mean us harm, and they have the resources to harm us. They have attacked, firebombed several organisations, including Freedom Press in Whitechapel, The Morning Star in Islington, as well as Asian families in Gravesend very recently. We should not panic, but we should seriously prepare and let the anti-fascist groups know, i.e. Searchlight, Anti-Nazi League and Anti-Fascist Action. And every volunteer should know where and how to use fire extinguishers, what to do if the building is under physical attack, phone the police, be careful leaving the building. An attack could happen any time and we can't rely on being able to call the police or the police arriving on time. An attack will be very well planned and very quick. They will want to get whoever is here and smash and torch the building. I'm very tired, but we should take their threats seriously. When you're part of an organisation that supports any marginalised community, there's always, always a risk, which is why Switchboard's registered address is still a PO box. Yeah, and organisations are just made up of individuals, right? When you threaten an organisation, you threaten the individuals within it. Yeah, so a threat to any individual queer person is a threat to all queer people, like what this caller experienced. This is a logbook entry from March 14th, 1995. Just had a call from an upset man who was victim of an obscene phone call from a group called Combat 18. They said they knew about him and his flatmate and would out him at work. He dialed 1471 and got their number. He also reported it to the police who said they were a known fascist group. Perhaps we should let Capital Gay and Pink Paper know about their existence and monitor calls about them. Sometimes threats like that turn into reality. 
So we need to tell you about the nail bombs that took place in London in April 1999. Brixton on the 17th in a busy Saturday shopping area and Brick Lane on April the 24th. And then this. This is a logbook entry from April the 30th, 1999. We're getting lots of calls related to the incident. Many people, including some of those here present, are worried about friends of theirs who may well have been in the area this evening. Kerry was himself only in Brewer Street when it happened. He came straight to Switchboard to organise the effort along with Boo. Calls received so far. John Peel of the BBC called to offer his support towards any fundraising or benefit for the victims. Gaze Against the Nazis phoned to tell us about the demo tomorrow. Black Jewish gay man from Israel phoned to offer his support. QDOS bar manager searching for missing employee. I gave casualties number. Hope he's okay. This is a logbook entry from May the 1st, 1999, at 2am. Boo and I have just come back from New Scotland Yard, having had a briefing on tonight's bombing. The response was that we should encourage everyone to be vigilant. Please make a note of all calls dealing with the bombing in this book and be prepared to take information for the police. Thanks, Kerry. My name is Jeremy Adams and I've lived through many things. I was working at the Queen's Theatre, which was just off Old Compton Street. And I remember there was a time when we just heard this noise. And nobody was quite sure what it was, but knew that some, you know, there's a kind of sense when you hear something like that, that something is not right. And then I came out of the theatre and just walked into Old Compton Street and just walked into sort of like devastation. People bleeding, people on the floor, police everywhere. It was sort of horrific. It was sort of terrible. Um... And people doing all they could to help. And I, I, I did what I, I could to help. And then I had to go back to the theatre. A nail bomb went off tonight in a crowded pub in central London. The device exploded around 6.30. People there have spoken of individuals being thrown 30 feet across the road by the force of the blast. Eyewitnesses talked of hearing a loud explosion, like a clap of thunder. I'm Richard Desmond. I joined Switchboard in 1993 and I've been with Switchboard since then. We got our act together incredibly quickly. We started the phones. You know, that's what we do. We were able to put extra phone lines in the basement. We listened to our community grieve. I've got no idea what the call reports are like from that time. I've not looked at the logbook for... What's that? You know, all these years now. I've, um, you know, I, I don't know what I wrote or what I said. But we got through it. Because our volunteers pulled together and actually did the work. And, you know... I'm, always proud of switchboard but that that was a particularly proud moment and I think that, that there are people who you know called us at that point who remember us and, 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 and again grateful that we were there we know about how our community survived HIV we know we know we know about grieving and death this wasn't like that this was a very specific very nasty attack on us We had a friend that was a really fantastic singer and she had a gig at the back bar in Soho. So we would come home from work on a Friday night, have a light supper, go to bed, set the clock for half past ten at night, get up, drive up to Soho and spend the early hours in the back bar with all of our girlfriends and friends mm -hmm. generally. And it was a really happy time. I think people had started to feel that there was a confidence back and it was lovely to be gay and uh, right the admiral duncan was right down one end of the um end of soho 
And the back bar was down the other end, end, next door to Madame Jojo's. Um, so it was fairly close, too close for comfort. Um, when that happened um, at the Admiral, I think we felt we were so close that it could well have happened in Madame Jojo's or the back bar. Mm-hmm. And I think it did strike a terror in all around at that time. Did we stop going up there for a while? I think I we, we probably did. We Knowing go. you, I would say definitely we yeah. did. Scaredy cat. <laughs> Scaredy cat from the north, yes, of course. I'm Julian House. The night of the Soho bombing, I was not in Soho. I actually think I was at home. I was. I think I was at home at dinner and we sort of started to see that um, and use the other two bombings on the news and we immediately thought, uh, my God, what is going on? I thought to myself, well, I hope that, uh, um, my God, the people from Switchboard are going to be getting an awful lot of calls. And indeed they were. You know, they went back to, uh, uh, you know, 24-hour, more phone lines on. Um, you know, people who I knew that were volunteering at the time, like uh, Richard Desmond, you know, immediately like sort of thought, hmm, not going to the back street tonight. I'm getting on the bus to Switchboard. And I think that was uh, the... Uh, um, that is something that Switchboard volunteers did. I remember when it happened, phoning around my friends to make sure that they were okay. Uh, people who I knew who regularly went out in, in Soho. Um, a friend of mine who was a nurse was on duty at the hospital that day, uh, treating people from the bombing. Um, afterwards, I found out that I knew various people who were in the bombing. Um, A few years later, one of our local barmen here in South London uh, told us his Admiral Duncan story. He'd he'd been in the pub when the bomb went off. He'd been in the gents' loose and the ceiling had come down on him. And he'd walked out of it unscathed and covered in dust and presumably a bit dazed and ended up just walking off to another bar in Soho. I remember the the Admiral Duncan bomb pretty clearly. My name's Judith Skinner. I was a volunteer at Switchboard from 1990 to 2001. At the time it happened, I was on holiday in the Scottish borders with three friends, all, all of us lesbians, and we were, we were walking. We were on a long-distance path. We got up one morning in this village, passed by the village shop and saw headlines about the Admiral Duncan bombing. And I remember just the utter shock and the terrible feeling of this outrageous attack that had happened in London where three of us lived. Um, It was hideous. It was hideous. Listening to those stories from all those people who remember where they were when they heard about the bomb, no matter where they were or what they were doing, you can just hear how they were all impacted because they know they're part of that community. Yeah, and Tash, and I think the way that we can relate to this is when the gun attacks happened in the Pulse nightclub in Florida, in Orlando in 2016. I remember just being horrified and I remember being at work on the Monday immediately afterwards, texting friends through the day just about how awful this was and deciding to go to Soho that night for what became this huge impromptu vigil for the victims of that attack. Yeah, and I remember the emails flying around at Switchboard saying that we need to get more people on the phones because the calls are increasing because of the impact of those attacks all the way across in the US. But we felt it here in the UK because we are part of that community. Yeah, and it's times like this when you really see a community pulled together, no matter where people are in that community, as we can see in this logbook entry with this person who just wanted to help. This is a logbook entry from May the 2nd, 8.30am. Caller phone to see if there was anything practical he could do following the bomb in Compton Street, e.g. hospital visits. Told him about blood donations, possible future demonstrations, etc. 
and just to go to Soho with friends to raise profile. The volunteer adds, I went to Soho last night, and although busy, wasn't as crowded as usual. It was. It would have been some days after, but not long. The streets were absolutely packed. Uh, some people were crying. Most were standing, heads bowed. Um, I mean, it was completely packed. All of that section of Old Compton Street, plus some of the, you know, some of the side side streets were were just full, and it was full of you know, the full LGBTQA and just people with a social conscience, people who cared. It was it was London, or my London, put it like that, standing in in honour um, of people and in anger who 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 had done it. Uh, there were there were some uh, some people said some things. I can't remember anything that was said publicly. I just remember being part of this this big crowd of people and it felt very big because it's quite enclosed there and the determination that there is no way we are going back into the shadows the world is changing and you know we are a very big part of that change through switchboard we organize counseling trucks that we put outside the prince edward theater what we did at Switchboard, you know, it's not just the people who were affected in that, but it's the people who this triggered something that happened to them before or whatever. But we were there. So the police were saying to us something, even to the extent of like, oh, we have all these flowers outside the Admiral Duncan. The flowers have to be moved because we've got to start doing the work that we need to do at the Admiral Duncan. How do we do it? What do we do? We can't, we don't, we do not want to be the people picking up the flowers and moving them up the road. So switchboard came, and I think it was the, the Gay Men's Chorus, the Pink Singers, I can't remember which one, um, organised a sort of vigil late one night that we, with some volunteers, we just went and we picked up the flowers and we moved them up to Soho Square. And then we sort of did that with the police sort of supporting us, but not, again, I think they were just so nervous about being seen to do anything wrong so it was an extraordinary it was a complete reversal of everything that we'd come to think of with the police that the police we were actually london has been a gay switchboard was actively working with the police force to manage this situation the awful thing about tragedies is it brings people together i think to you know you're there to not solve the problem but to how to deal with the problem so i think it was on a very I mean, I'd just be, not giggling, but I'd sort of, with Boo, I'd be going in every morning going, can you believe this? Can you actually believe we'd be going in? And, 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 you know, there were, there were times when we'd actually say to them, well, there have been many, many bombings before in London. You know, we've been used to bombings before with the IRA, bombings and all that kind of thing. But you're acting as if this is the first time a bomb has ever gone off in London. You must have things that you know that you have in place, that you know what to do, that you do. So so let's help you, but don't... I don't know. You know, they'd say to us things like, how long do you think the van needs to be up? You know, the counselling van. And, and we're going, I don't know. We don't know. We put it there as an, an immediate response to help people there. But you must have done this stuff before. We're not the experts on this. But it was, it was, an, it was, it was sort of an amazing time. This is a logbook entry from May the 3rd, 1999. At midnight tonight, all the flowers from outside the Admiral Duncan will be moved to Soho Square by members of the London Gay Men's Chorus and London Lesbian and Gay Switchboard. This move is endorsed by the families of the victims. It is requested that all future memorials go to Soho Square which will be open all night tonight. Boo Armstrong. I was in central London, in Soho, the afternoon um, of the the day of the um, bombing at the Admiral Duncan. Um, And I had left to go home maybe about an hour and a half earlier. Um, 
with a changed plan to go out for drinks that evening. Um, the Admiral Duncan was also quite close to me because I, I'd worked as a, a pub manager um, for five years when first coming to London. And I worked for the same chain that ran the Admiral Duncan at the time. And I had discussed moving into an LGBT venue. And the Admiral Duncan was one of the, the, the venues that had been mooted um, as a potential move for me to go to. Um, in the end, I didn't move into an LGBT venue because of the management opportunity that that arose where I, I was. Um, but it just, it, it struck me because of that, because of that kind of, you know, that that peripheral connection really and we heard that there was a rally being organized on this the saturday because um not in immediate response to the the soho bombing but in response to the brixton and brick lane bombings the, the two weeks before and then of course you know this happened on the friday night so it all became you know uh, much more meaningful um and so we arranged a group to to go down um join that rally, um, which was in Brixton. The day after, um, on the Sunday, so two days after the, the nail bomb attack, I remember being part of a group from Switchboard who went down to Soho Square and we assisted with a collection. Um, on the, there was a rally um, and speeches. And at that rally, it was announced that the police had caught David Copeland. And, um, you know, so obviously there was a huge sense of relief um, happened then. But we, I remember standing on the gates coming out of uh, Soho Square, holding our switchboard buckets um, and collecting money. And people were so generous. You know, there were so many notes going into those buckets. It was, it was astonishing. Um, and I think um, that that collection, which it wasn't switchboard collect. Thing. It was just mobilising. Um, the collection, I think, got about £20,000 in Soho Square on the day, which was astonishing. And so I was involved as a representative of Switchboard on um, the April bombings appeal, which was set up, I think, by Ivan Massau um, and his company um, managed it. Um, and that's where all of that donation money went. And, you know, the, there was a wider appeal um, to support um, victims and their families. Switchboard responded as it always does very immediately. And I remember that Boo and Jeremy, our co-chairs at the time, um, went on the BBC. They spoke. Um, we became a, a, a point of contact. Um, and it was so important that we, that we were there. And certainly the, the calls that we had for weeks afterwards reflected, um, that need. Um, so, yeah, I think it's something we should be really proud of at Switchboard. Because of the Stephen Lawrence case that had just gone on where the the police had been perceived of handling it so badly, I think was so ultra aware of having to handle this properly and the fact that it was a very prominent gay pub in Soho, the gay district, if you like, of London as it was then. How did they do it? So Switchboard was one of the first organizations that they reached out to for help and then myself and um boo armstrong who was the co-chair with me at the time we were the first co-chairs of, of switchboard a man and a woman we would spend every morning at new scotland yard at about eight o'clock in the morning for the briefing and there'd be there would be other lgbt organizations but we were and literally they would they would be asking us you know, A, it was sort of terrifying, I mean, really, for a person of our age and everything, to actually go into New Scotland Yard, but to be, like, asked to be in New Scotland Yard. So it was always... And having spent, you know, from the whole of the previous decades of being... The, the police always being the enemy, always being the terrifying, always being the kind of people that you were scared of, to suddenly be asked to be and sit in their rooms and ask about how they should be handling things was sort of extraordinary, was completely extraordinary. This nail bomb attack at the Admiral Duncan pub happened in 1999 and it led to a shift in the police attitude towards Switchboard and the LGBTQI plus community. You might remember in season one we covered the police persecution of men having sex with men in episode four. Now this time things unfolded differently. So often with these types of attacks on our community you see a backlash. People contacting switchboard with rising levels of hate with so many more threats and the switchboard volunteers have to deal with that 
This is a logbook entry from May the 7th, 1999. An awful man called and ranted at me down the phone for a good minute, telling me how sick I was and how much we as a community, my word, deserved this. Not wanting to reciprocate with hate, what do you say? Never have I been so insulted by such sickness and hate. Volunteer E writes, I feel for you. Volunteer A writes, I have a few ideas about this from the counselling course I'm on. Talk to me if you want. Volunteer F writes, isn't this a sure sign that the bombs may be triggering further homophobia? Should we not prepare for it? Around the late, probably again, the late 90s, uh, a lot of calls and strangely, they would come early in the morning, um, our early shifts or very late at night. And they would be abusive calls and we would log them as abusive calls. And they would range from a, a string of expletives um, in a very angry voice to someone trying to engage you in conversation by asking about you as a volunteer and then getting very angry if you wouldn't tell them any information and then again um, abusing the volunteer and getting very cross about the whole situation sometimes hanging up um, in the middle of a sentence which is very frustrating for the volunteer often they would be with a group of friends and you could tell that they'd been possibly drinking and they were egging each other on and then the phone would be passed around amongst the group. This is a logbook entry from the 9th of May 1999. Caller from Stockwell reports constant homophobic abuse from a gang of youths ever since the bombing. Police apparently not taking case seriously and caller is in constant state of fear and spoke to me in a highly panicked state. Gang is constantly attacking his flat and he is currently in the state of siege. Tash, you've got to wonder about the reasons for this kind of attack, right? If we go back to where we are at this moment, it's 1999. We had HIV and AIDS hitting the community in the 80s and 90s. We saw societal attitudes, the, all, of the different, diff, all the difficult, complex media propaganda that was stirring things up throughout that period of time. Then suddenly that starts to dip. And we're going into the late 90s. Things feel a bit calmer. We feel a bit more rooted. We feel a bit more part of society. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, bam. Yeah, and I think that the new government that started in 1997, the new Labour government, which had a specific focus around uh, more human rights, I think that was making everyone feel uh, things were getting better. And yeah, you're right. Then there was this bam, which just shows that there's always underlying hate. Yeah, definitely. We know that the Admiral Duncan pub was bombed on Friday the 30th, but it was planned for the Saturday, like the other two in Brixton and, and Brick Lane. But the bomber brought it forward because he saw a news story that the police were closing in on him. Yeah, and from the moment he was caught, he said that he was attacking black, Asian and gay people because he hates them. But we don't need to give him more time. It's always more useful to think about how and why these things actually happen. Yeah, I was shocked. I was shocked, but I wasn't surprised. I've never, I've, I've never underestimated the great tides of anti, anti-gay or, or, and racism and the, all the, 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 the horrible uh, things in our in our society. So, almost expecting the more public, the more out there, the more um uh, gay people are you know out and proud to use <laughs> cliche the more somebody's got to want to kick back so i guess i was i was shocked yet not 100% surprised and um you know touch wood i i fear that you know they, they, these things can happen again well they, you know, they do. We know, we know the tragic stories of gay people being targeted and hurt and beaten up and, and happening all the time. Just not as public as blowing up a pub in the middle of the gay village of Soho. 
When I saw the news about the nail bombs, um, I, I, I think like many people, I was in shock. I thought this can't happen in a city like London. And for me, it was like, I'm just starting to live my life here. I'm, I'm getting it together. I'm starting to flourish here. This is my, I feel home. Um, and it was shocking. And I actually did stop going into town. But for me, maybe the impact of it was slightly more muted because I was already dealing with my identity as a South Asian woman. So I was already dealing with aspects of racism. I was dealing with gender, sexism, misogyny. I just got sacked for coming out at a job in a refuge. And I was like, you know, that doesn't happen, but it did. Um, so having carved out my life in London, I was dealing with a lot of other stuff and then this happened. And in a way it was like, this is my space it was my physical space because I used to love going down to Compton Street and Soho and I'd go out there and hand out flyers to the club and I'd chat to people. That was my community. So when that happened, it was like, I just felt like, Carly, are you messing with me? What What's going on here? Um, I think I was just in a state of shock. Um, but then I thought, you know what? I'm I'm still going to keep going. I'm going to keep going in the same way that I kept going when I left home, in the same way I kept going when I moved to London and then I set up Club Carly. I'm going to keep going. So I, I didn't wait too long. I just started going back into Soho and started to reclaim what I felt was my space. Um, and I thought, no, that's just another aspect where the world is trying to take something away from me and I'm not going to let it. I guess I didn't get too much into it. A lot of the coverage was around imagery of white men at the drinking at the pub and I wasn't too impressed with the way the media reported it as well. But I thought whether it's white men or not, it's still my home. That, that street, that space is still my space. Um, and so, yeah, I just went back out and started reclaiming it. I thought to myself, well, well, that stands to reason, doesn't it? You know, it stands to reason that you know we are, uh, uh, you know, we are people in exactly the same way that uh, uh, um, you know, you know, racism equals sexism equals homophobia. Uh, all those things are so intimately joined that that you know one cannot be one cannot be surprised in some ways. Uh, yeah, horrible and regrettable. Uh, how many times over how many years had I been there where a group of of thugs or or anti gay people had you know been outside a lesbian or gay venue um or a suspected lesbian and gay venue and decided to beat the shit out of people things like the admiral duncan um uh, thing happening gives permission for people who are um, homophobic to phone something like switchboard up and turn around and say well see it's all your fault I think also it, there's even something deeper than that there's something deeper than that the little boy who phones up from the telephone box and starts off by saying you fucking puffs you're like fucking puffs aren't you you know and you say well why are you saying that you know? And then eventually it's them overcompensating with the fact that they have fears about their own gayness, for example. Yeah, to a certain extent we are there and always have been there to take the shit about that. But also um, a lot of the time it's about that person venting and then actually getting through to talking to them about their own fears, their own insecurities, their own upset, you know. You know, I won't say that it's welcomed but I will say that uh, the reasons that people do this are, uh, are um, there because we're always there with the kind words and support which can actually turn that around and uh, at least uh, help somebody to disentangle some of the, uh, the hate and fear that they feel is about them. A lot of the men who were in the Admiral Duncan that night I knew from my local, which was the Colhern, the two were very much sort of kissing cousins. So I knew, in in bar terms, a lot of the people in that bar that night. Um, so, but I wasn't going out regularly, and the Admiral Duncan wasn't my thing. 
I'm afraid I'm, I was tempted up to Hampstead Heath. I like, I like the rather wilder, open-air nights under the moonlight, <laughs> hiding in a bush, pulling up in knickers, fabulous. <laughs> but the bar thing, I'd sort of, I, I wasn't a man. But of course, as soon as I heard it, my mind flashed back. It's been like this for us queers forever. We're always under attack from some group or other who find us just too beautiful and different to deal with. My mind went straight back to far-right Nazis and, of course, what happened in the concentration camps to our queer brothers just gassed and killed along with so many other peoples of difference. And I thought, why... As a group, have we had to have to put up with all this attack and death and murder? Because we've been murdered for years and years, historically, and we're still being thrown off the top of buildings. And look at Chechnya, the horrors that are going on there. How is it that the world is so vicious that it can want to kill people because not only their sex, but their colour, and here we're in kissing brothers with our black brothers and sisters, that we are targets for people of nastiness, people of hate. And it's still happening. We still hear of murders, of queer bashing, of stigma, of we still got such a long way to go. And again, I would appeal to the younger generation to... Remember that huge gains were made by my generation, but there are still huge gains to be made. The papers, which might have been previously rather homophobic, suddenly seem to wake up to the fact that homophobia could lead to direct uh, violence. It was like they'd never associated those things before, and they'd suddenly noticed that our community was under attack. Um, and because newspapers, journalists, TV had been there almost instantly, presumably because journalists were quite used to drinking around Soho, a lot of media outlets and things, TV stations were based not far away. Presumably they were on the ground immediately after the bombing quite easily. There was a lot of coverage that was fairly favourable towards our community and recognised us as a community under attack. Um, you know, whereas we've been under attack for the whole of my life, but it was like the media hadn't really noticed that before. Claire's got the benefit of hindsight there, seeing that shift in media coverage becoming more sympathetic towards, well, basically just gays and lesbians because of this awful attack. Mm, and I hope in 22 years' time, <laughs> reflecting back on how the media handles trans rights today, it won't take devastation like this to see that shift towards a more empathetic reporting. One place we see a lot of empathy and respect is in our amazing queer venues, like the Admiral Duncan and one of our favourite places, The Glory. I'm John Sizzle. I'm one of the co-owners of The Glory, along with Johnny Wu and Colin Rothbart, and I'm here today in The Glory. I'm constantly, as, as a venue owner, constantly trying to gauge the sort of vibe on the street around this venue. And I suppose since Trump, in the last five years, we've been going for seven years, since Trump, there was definitely an air around the whole world um, of bigotry and homophobia and just hate and just a license for people to to express their distaste for stuff that had nothing to do with them. Um, so I think that's definitely waned a little bit. But there's always something in the air in, in a place like London and in a bustling 
um, sort of uh, sort of urban area like Hackney. That bombing of the of the Admiral Duncan that was on the thirtieth of April, nineteen ninety nine, which was the day after my twenty first birthday, and I was basically supposed to be trolling around Soho. On the 29th, um, I don't know what, what I ended up doing, but that was a bit of a close shave, wasn't it? I, I do count myself lucky to, to have escaped that one. So it's, what, over 20 years since the bombing of the Admiral Duncan in 99. And we're trying to work out, if it, think about if it could happen again. Of course it could. It could. Anything like that could happen. It does happen, but probably not at that scale, you know, Venues like this at the Glory, we have instances all the time where people are kicking the door or doing drive-by eggings. Um, there's no reason why that can't be a petrol bomb. I mean, obviously, the Admiral Duncan was more extreme. That was a bomb bomb. Um, but it doesn't need to be a bomb to be as effective as what happened there. Well, to make, to make a, a venue safe for the punters, uh, anyone coming here, you have to do really. You have to spend a lot of money. Basically, it's all about the security. Um, you know, we have on a busy night here. We have three security guards. I don't mind saying that costs me nearly a thousand pounds a week in security alone. Um, you have to train people up, the managers and the bar staff, to to be attentive to the clientele or, or what's going on around around them in terms of people who might be undesirable. Or even threats within our own community, people being too drunk or too druggy or just too messy or, or just having difficulties, you know, um, with their lives and, and how they may express that in a venue. There's also the threat of not just violence, like sexual issues as well. Um, it, but it's really about awareness. We're, we're acutely aware now of, of, of everyone that comes through the door. We, we get abuse in all of its forms here. It's, we don't get that much of it. I think, I think um, we're not in the busier part of Dalston, where it's a bit quieter down here. But what we do have is a local school who every month or so there's some kind of trouble from. And I, I've had instances where they range from people just calling, phoning up, and saying really ridiculous things like, you know, they want a bit of cock or whatever, and I tell them to go and ask their mum. <laughs> Um, to doing things like, you know, chucking eggs or, or, or scrawling something on the wall. It's not too bad. I mean, kids, kids are kids. But there have been instances where there was one when I was here and someone, the kids just kicked the front door in, gave it a boot, so it banged open, and then all stood outside, despite me going out and giving them a load of grief. And they were just completely in my face. Just the, man, the mendacity of it was ridiculous. Um, they scarpered, though, when I pointed out the CCTV and told them that I'd see him in assembly on Monday. <laughs> but, you, you know, you just get little things like that. But I don't know, these people grow up, don't they? They grow up into, into dangerous adults sometimes. Yeah, of course, there's still a need for, for safe spaces. And the glory being, being a prime example of a space that people can come to um, not only perform and hang out, but I think to... to the main importance is for, is for people to sort of get a sense of their own self and grow into, into more confident, productive, caring, loving adults that the world at large will benefit from. We're not just like a cave of queers that just act queer in the cave and then leave the cave and then go and, you know, buy a coffee. We're actually people that are productive to society, you know, Queers are still doctors and nurses and teachers and, and dancers and singers and dinner ladies and, you know, and mothers and fathers. We're still, we're part of society. And the reason we, we need a, a, a safe space, a queer space, is so that we can come in and, and breathe some queer oxygen because all we normally have is the heteronormative type that we're, that, you know, that we're having to um, to 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 live off ninety eight percent of the day, so so it's, it is really important, and it, and it's and this is where you know this is where good pop culture comes from, um, this is where good art comes from, this is where 
good stories and good performance comes from. So yeah, safe safe spaces are are are, are the future. You know that, that I think I think um, without them, we'd all just be you know it would be a bit Marks and Spencers, wouldn't it? Adam, is M&S a safe space for you? Uh, <laughs> uh, definitely not. There's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's too many pleated clothing items. But there is this wider conversation happening around safe or safer spaces, especially with regard to consent. And it's such a big topic. And we're going to be including it as part of a future episode in this season on kink. But next, we're going to take a look at the rising calls to switchboard from 1992 to 2003, from people who wanted to talk about gender identity. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed callers' details. The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Tash Walker and Adam Smith, in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline and supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. If you think other people would like the logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag thelogbooks. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to... Steph Dickers and the team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the folks at ACAST, content is Queen, David Pye, the staff and volunteers at Switchboard, and everyone who shared their stories with us. Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at or instant message via switchboard.lgbt, where you can also donate money or time to help.